what we found to be the most effective form of getting through those dark days was over communication. And I can't stress that. It seems so simple. And, you know, if someone says, you know, how do you get through a pandemic and they want this magic formula? There wasn't one. But every day we would talk to the whole organization. Whatever we heard, good or bad, we shared. And I think that was important to build up credibility and to build up again that trust. And, you know, whether it was a difficult conversation or today was a little bit better, we had to share it, right? Everyone was in this together. Everyone needed to appreciate what was going on, what would be expected of them, and how the plans will change. Welcome to Difficult Conversations, lessons I learned as an ICU physician with Dr. Anthony Orsini. Dr. Orsini is a practicing physician and president and CEO of the Orsini Web. As a frequent keynote speaker and author, Dr. Orsini has been training healthcare professionals and business leaders how to navigate through the most difficult dialogues. Each week, you will hear inspiring interviews with experts in their field who tell their story and provide practical advice on how to effectively communicate. Whether you are a doctor faced with giving a patient bad news, a business leader who wants to get the most out of his or her team members, or someone who just wants to learn to communicate better, this is the podcast for you. Well, I am honored today that the Orsini Way has partnered with the Finley Project to bring you this episode of Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician. The Finley Project is a nonprofit organization committed to providing care for mothers who have experienced the unimaginable, the loss of an infant. It was created by their founder, Noel Moore, whose sweet daughter Finley died in 2013. It was at that time that Noel realized that there was a large gap between leaving the hospital without your baby and the time when you get home that led her to start the Finley Project. The Finley Project is the nation's only seven-part holistic program that helps mothers after infant loss by supporting them physically and emotionally. They provide such things as mental health counseling, funeral arrangement support, grocery gift cards, professional house cleaning, professional massage therapy, and support group placement. The Finley Project has helped hundreds of women across the country, and I can tell you that I have seen personally how the Finley Project has literally saved the lives of mothers who lost their infant. If you are interested in learning more or referring a family or donating to this amazing cause, please go to thefinleyproject.org. The Finley Project believes that no family should walk out of a hospital without support. Well, welcome to another episode of Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician. This is Dr. Anthony Orsini, and I'll be your host again this week. You know, with the COVID crisis, it's really affected everyone, but especially those of us in the healthcare organization, those of us who had to provide quality care really under incredible circumstances. The best organizations have learned how to adapt, adjust, and survive. The things are just they're just different now. And as a physician, I've never experienced this before. Hospital and healthcare executives have had to make some very tough decisions. And along with those decisions come some very tough conversations. So today I have as a guest, someone with a proven record who's going to talk about how healthcare organizations adapted to this crisis. Since 2015, Anthony Viceroy has been the chief executive officer of WestMed Medical Group an award-winning multi-specialty outpatient organization comprised of 500 physicians and advanced care providers and more than 1,500 employees throughout Westchester County, New York, 
in Fairfield County in Connecticut. As one of 548 accountable care organizations in the United States, WestMed has earned a national reputation for its focus on improving the quality of care for patients while reducing unnecessary costs in the healthcare system. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today. According to the CMS, WestMed has ranked within the top 6% nationally for total savings generated compared to the benchmark and has achieved savings consistently in each year. In addition to his focus on maintaining excellence and quality initiatives, Mr. Viceroy has also championed enhancements to the WestMed patient experience and has led the group to achieve an impressive 95 percentile ranking for overall patient satisfaction. WestMed has earned repeated industry recognition as one of the best workplaces in the country by Fortune Magazine under Mr. Viceroy's leadership, and we're going to talk about that. I can't wait to actually talk about that. Mr. Viceroy received his MBA in global management and corporate finance from Fordham University and his BBA in public accounting from Iona College. He holds an executive certificate from Cornell University in healthcare leadership. He is a CPA and a chartered global management accountant. In addition to his work at WestMed, Anthony Viceroy is a member of the Board of Advisors for New York Medical College and serves as a member of the Board of Directors of the Westchester County Associates. He's also a member of the Board of Trustees at Manhattanville College in Harrison, New York. And that was quite a long introduction, but Anthony, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Tony. I'm happy to be here. You know, we met through a mutual friend, my cousin, and we spoke on the phone a month ago and two guys named Anthony, I guess, just hit it off. And so I was really excited to get to know you. And the more I learned about your work and about WestMed, the more excited I get because I know we're going to learn a lot from you today. But before we get into that, I always like to start the same way. Who's Anthony Viceroy? How did you get here today? Tell us a little bit about yourself so my audience can learn about you. Sure. I'm, I think I'm still trying to uh, discover who Anthony Viceroy is. <laughs> I think I'm a self-proclaimed workaholic. I love what I do and I'm very fortunate to be doing what I do, especially as we've seen throughout this global pandemic, just how important you know healthcare truly is. My background is, is extremely out of the ordinary, I would say. I spent probably about two weeks in audit coming out of college and realized that uh, it was something that I didn't have a great passion for. I moved over to corporate tax and spent a number of years doing both domestic and international tax for three of the large big accounting firms. And then did a brief stint doing some management consulting and then ended up at Novo Nordisk, a Danish biopharmaceutical company, where I was there for five years, working my way through to become treasurer of North America. And after Novo Nordisk, I had a great opportunity to join uh, Omnicon Group, which is a Fortune 200 global marketing and communications company. I was there for 10 years. That's where I got to meet our mutual friend, James. And probably the first six years I was in corporate roles, had a portfolio of agencies kind of, you know, under me, working closely with the CEOs and CFOs of those organizations. The last two was really doing much more on kind of the client side. If you think back to 2007, 2008, there was a lot of focus around reducing costs and marketing spend especially from these large brands, large organizations. So my role was really to kind of be as, you know, work effectively as part of a team to drive greater value and demonstrate that value to the Procter's and Gambles and HPs of the world. And then in 2009, I ended up 
joining one of the agencies, Porta Novelli, as initially I came in as the global CFO and then moved into global president of the organization. And then in 2012, I had an opportunity to join WestMed Medical Group. And even though I had biopharmaceutical experience, I had no real healthcare background. But I thought it was definitely a great industry. At that time, it was probably 17% of GDP. You knew that healthcare was just on the verge of doing something special. It needed to kind of progress. Most of what was in healthcare was the old models. And as there was going to be more focus around delivering care at a more efficient manner and, and cost structure, I thought this was a, a great opportunity to kind of get in and you know, learn a new industry, but also be part of change, which I thought would have been exciting. So I've been fortunate that you know, for the last eight years, I've been part of such a, a wonderful organization and just have great physicians, great nurses, you know, front desk managers. I mean, really, everyone is just uh, outstanding and really have shown who they are, especially during this global pandemic and this crisis. And you mentioned the frontline heroes and yeah, although we're not a hospital, we are an outpatient facility. Still, when you're going through COVID and patients are coming in, wanting to be tested, not sure if they have it, but showing a lot of symptoms, it takes a tremendous amount of resolve to, you know, to come in every single day and deliver the highest possible care that you can under the most extreme, at least in my lifetime, circumstances that anyone's ever seen. So, you know, it's definitely been a great learning experience. And uh, like I said, I just think I'm very fortunate to be in this position. So I'm going to jump right into, a, we're going to talk about COVID in a second, but when I'm reading about WestMed and I was reading about you and I'm looking at what you've accomplished there. So you're an accountable care organization, which means that you really focus on cost reduction for people out there that don't know what that is. And I'll maybe you can mention, talk more about that. But you're in the top 6% nationally for total savings generated. You're in the 95 percentile in patient experience. And you're one of the best, I think Fortune Magazine named you as one of the best workplaces in the country in healthcare. There are many people, Anthony, that would say that you cannot have all three of those. That to save money, have that kind of high patient satisfaction and that kind of employee engagement would be a pipe dream. And yet you were able to do that how do you pull that off? I personally believe they're all tied together, but you don't see that trifecta. Well, you know, what I, I'll say is this. I mean, every day you work at it, right? I mean, nothing here is, is simple, you know, and it isn't one person or even a small team. It really is an organization that has to be committed to delivering this type of care, this type of satisfaction every single day. And, you know, in our market in New York and Connecticut, you know, it's a very hyper competitive market, large health systems, you know, technology companies looking to be disruptive. So I think it's important that we always have to balance kind of the needs of all the key stakeholders, but always look for ways to improve each and every day. And I think when you bring that level of a mindset and you surround yourself with very talented people, you'd be surprised what you're able to accomplish. You know, there are days where I feel like we move maybe a little bit better in one direction than the other, but I think that's how you need to, to balance your organization and balance the business. It's hard to be great at everything, and there's a lot of organizations that celebrate not being great in certain areas because they're very great in other areas, and that's their brand. 
But when you're delivering care, as you could appreciate, you can't make that distinction of what's important and what isn't. And I think today, when I entered back in 2012, it really wasn't about patient experience. It was really just starting to get formulated. It was still much more a physician-driven practice. And my personal belief is that, you know, we've probably have shifted a little bit too much now to the other extreme, where I think physicians are often forgotten about in this equation, and they have such a very important part of making sure that care gets delivered effectively. So what we try to do is make our physicians feel valued, feel important, uh, and are part of the solution. But we also have to appreciate that in the eight years since I joined, the world has changed. We moved into a very digital platform. Access, convenience, and experience is the future of healthcare. And you have to be able to anticipate what your patient, who's also a consumer now, purchasing healthcare, what their needs are and what they want. And then how do you build that into a culture that has to continuously look to perform at a very high standard? So, you know, it's about recruiting, I think, the right people initially. I'm very much a big believer in talent, but also in shared beliefs. I've seen a lot of talented people who come into the system, but if they don't believe what you believe, culturally, it just doesn't fit. So I think it's important that you have shared beliefs and everyone kind of buys into what we're trying to accomplish here. Then you have to just every day work at it. And I think, you know, part of why I love what you're doing in particular is, you know, uh, difficult conversations are important conversations. And the more that you have these conversations, they become less difficult. But more importantly, you start to build trust, you build relationships. And that's how I think you're able to accomplish a lot more. When there's mistrust and a lack of the relationship, you're not going to be able to move as quickly as you need to move. And especially today, I mean, you talk about agility, but it's so important to be able to move rapidly because, you know, otherwise you're just left behind. You know, you said trust and relationship, and I can tell you this is probably about the 25th, 28th episode that I'm recording right now. And I don't think it's an exaggeration or 20 or 22 of those episodes, those two words came up. And we, whether we're talking business, whether we're talking doctor patient relationship, employee leader relationship, it is all about trust. We dropped Stephen Covey's episode just recently, the speed of trust. And that was just a great episode, but they are really interrelaced. And I'm not sure a lot of people understand that. So patient experience, which I'm so passionate about, as you know, it clearly affects clinical outcomes. So you're providing good care if you're providing patient experience. And you can't provide good care if you have unhappy nurses, unhappy doctors, unhappy receptionists. You know, I often wonder sometimes when I go to a doctor's office, does the doctor ever call his own office? Does he realize how his phone is being, you know, the name of my book, it's all in the delivery. It's like what I tell a story in my book about I called the cardio, or maybe it's in my workshops. I called a cardiologist for an appointment and the cardiologist, the, the receptionist said they don't have anybody for any appointments for four weeks. And I said, I don't really like to do this, but does it help that I'm a doctor? You know, maybe, you know, I'm a doctor at this hospital. And she said, I'll never forget this. She said, nope. And I said, okay. So I hung up the phone. I called another group and she didn't have an appointment for four weeks either. But she said, you know what, doctor, let me see what I can do. She got on the phone 
30 seconds later. And she said, I really tried. I just can't. And I appreciated that. And I felt so much nicer about her. And there's a difference between just having a happy employee and another employee who's not so happy. So the top 80, I think it was 69% of all hospital executives and leaders have named patient experience in their top three of priorities for the year 2018, I believe it was. Yet very few, or if, well, some of them have, but most of them have not really put the resources into improving patient experience. But it sounds like WestMed has. I think you use some outside organizations to help you and just place that emphasis on everybody. How important do you think that whole thing is to the success of WestMed? I think it's vital. I think it's, unfortunately, we're not in an either or atmosphere anymore, right? So you have to do a very good job of engaging physicians. And I keep going back to, you have to have physicians be part of the solutions as healthcare has so many issues. You know, I look around other organizations and you know, physicians are used much more interchangeably, you know, much more salary type of not only model, but also just of a mindset. We don't have that, right? We want our physicians to feel like they're very much engaged. They are owners of the business in every which way. But you have to also nurture that relationship. So we do things like I have monthly dinners, you know, pre-COVID, but we'll bring, you know, we're a large multi-specialty practice. So we'll bring 15, 20 different physicians out once a month and we share ideas. I explain on a macro level what is going on in the industry, kind of what direction we're going in as an organization. And then on a micro level, kind of what is, you know, what's really going on inside the clinics and, you know, what's working, what isn't working, what would they like to see happen? And I think exchanging that type of information back to the trust and relationship goes a long way. It also really highlights what's wrong in the company and how quickly can you fix it, going back to speed being so imperative. And then I think there's other things that we do, you know, we've been having kind of these burnout series you know, where we're trying to create more wellness for our physicians and trying to balance how do you deliver a high level of care with a large patient panel, but not get burnt out. And it's interesting, you know, what my experience has been surgeons never burn out, but primary care will tend to feel the pain. And as, you know, as access is even more important and more patients want to get in, that level of burnout starts to become even more important. So we're very cognizant of that and we try to balance that and work with our physicians, whether it's on their panel size or just on their mental well-being. I mean, we've offered even through COVID you know, our behavioral health services internally to both physicians and employees to have a resource in order to kind of work through these issues. We do a lot around career planning and leadership training and things like that. So again, we don't assume that everyone knows how to do things. And then, you know, on the other side, of the, so that's on the physician and employee side, on the patient experience side, it's just something that we work at every single day. You know, I know there's so many great programs out there, but if you really think about it, it really comes down to how do you want to be treated? And if you treat your patients the way you want to be treated, if you were going somewhere else, I mean, that's really the basic success of, of patient experience. I mean, we're at the 95th percentile overall, which we're very proud of. But I think what I'm even more proud of is our physicians are at the 97th percentile. You know, so again, that relationship between physicians and patients is just so vital. 
and to affirm that our patients really see value in what our physicians are doing and truly appreciate the physician uh, relationship is important. And we want to celebrate that and we want to continue that. You know, we moved over to this NPS now score. We were using Prescani, so for those in healthcare, we call Prescani. But even our NPS score is at 87, which for our net promoter score is a very high number as well. So it's just something that we're always very cognizant of and we appreciate. We have to continuously work to be, you know, the best that we can be. It's not, I think a lot of organizations roll it out because it's an imperative and, you know, you kind of check the box that you did this, but then the following year, you're on to another initiative and you're not giving it the right level of love and maturity and looking to go to 2.0 or 3.0 every single year. How do we improve upon where we're at? And, you know, we're mindful of that. So we very much are looking to keep building upon the success that we've had. And, you know, we've gotten great national recognition because of it. I mean, we were presenters at Cleveland Clinic's uh, Patient Experience Summit. So, again, I think that's just a testament to the organization and everyone who works so hard around building these programs and making sure that they, they stick. And then we keep building it, you know, year over year to make it even better. I have a lot of physicians right now that are listening to this interview, and I know exactly what they're saying as you're speaking. He gets us. <laughs> That's what they're saying right now, because you do get us. The way to make a physician happy is to give him or her independence, give him or her autonomy, show them that they're appreciated. We all want to help people. That's why we went into medicine in the first place. I'm a firm believer that there's a very small percentage of people that went into healthcare for the money. If you did, there's better ways of making it, to be honest with you, but you get it. And so what happens is it sounds like you understand what makes we as physicians and nurses and people tick, what makes us happy. When we're happy, our patients are happy. When our patients are happy, we have good patient satisfaction scores. And then you have great employee, best workplaces and less turnover. So it doesn't seem that hard, Anthony, but you've been able to nail it and a lot of people have not. So I want to thank you for that. And that's to me, that's clear as you're speaking, why WestMed has been so successful. So having said that, Anthony, Mr. Viceroy, let's move into COVID because that's really what this is about. As I mentioned before in other episodes, when I've spoken to other leaders, the general public looks out on TV during the COVID crisis, especially March, April, May. They see, rightly so, doctors and nurses who are just exhausted beyond the brink, sadness everywhere. And we hear about hospitals being full. But the reality is very different behind the scenes, right? I mean, we stopped elective surgeries. We've stopped elective procedures. And most of the time, although the hospitals may have had a big group of patients with COVID, many of them are empty. And as a primary care provider, you may have been swarmed with COVID patients, but the average routine checkup, people are staying away. Most hospitals have had to make some very difficult decisions, furloughing nurses, moving people around, doctors who've had to take big cuts in pay. I know, especially in the anesthesia group, but other primary care. So now you're trying to navigate this as the CEO of WestMed. Tell us about the difficult decisions you had to make and the difficult conversations that you, you had to go through for those. Sure. I mean, I think in hindsight now, you, you certainly can appreciate all that went into it. But, you know, candidly, I 
you just went forward. I mean, there wasn't even real a lot of time to think, Tony. I mean, it was, we started planning for this, my executive team, probably the very end of February. As I really started to see that, you know, it wasn't just in Europe was very bad shape. Knew it was coming, didn't know when. But, you know, we have all of our policies and our protocols around how to deal with disasters, but no one had anything for this. And every day you're hearing so much news that is just devastating and you're trying to figure out how do I handle this? So the first thing that I did very quickly on was I shored up our finances. I kind of felt like, you know, the capital markets are going to be a little crazy for the short term and maybe access to capital would be a bit of a challenge. And especially if patients weren't going to be receiving care, you know, how would you keep the doors open? So I immediately leveraged us up to be able to secure enough cash flow to get through a year. We've been very fortunate. We were financially a very disciplined organization. So my debt is virtually nothing. So I was able to take advantage very early on. And you know, I've talked to others in the industry that kind of waited until April. And at that point, it was much harder in order for these banks to kind of lend and the amounts they would give it out were just much less. So, you know, we moved very quickly to shore up our finances. And then what I realized very quickly is we had a, a PPP problem, a PPE problem, but we couldn't get the right information. I mean, every single day, what we heard from the Department of Health, what we heard from the CDC was conflicting. It was changing the hour. You know, give a mask, don't give a mask. As long as the doctor's masked, the patient doesn't have to be masked, the patient, not the doctor. And this went on every single day. Level one, level three masks. One day you're supposed to wear a level one, the next day level three, and then back to level one again. It was crazy. It was insane. And, you know, after maybe two or three days of this, came together and just said, we're masking everyone. You know, we don't know anything about this virus other than what we've been hearing, people dying in Europe. It's now here. There is community spread. You have to assume that it's you know going to be highly contagious. And even if wearing a mask doesn't stop this virus, there is a part of just confidence of having the mask where you feel a little bit less threatened, whether it's a patient or an employee who's on the front lines. So we started masking everyone. And when we did that, I realized that our PPE volume was going to be a matter of days out. So we were very fortunate. I think like many, we had to navigate through all the back channels in order to get inventory. There was no uh, 3M and 95 masks to be found anywhere. So we just took a large shipment of KN95 masks, probably enough for, you know, two years worth of of masks. So that way I would ensure that all of my staff, all of our patients would be masked and try to protect them as much as we could. We then moved very quickly to set up protocols as far as visits. We, I think, got about, we were already on telehealth, but not leveraging it much of the utilization was still relatively low. Within 48 hours, everyone was up and trained on virtual visits. And, you know, we tried to take care of as many patients, you know, some that had non-COVID medical conditions that were afraid to go to the hospital and others that just said, you know, how do I think I was in touch with someone who has it and how do I know if I have it? So just really just patient education. We were doing a lot of that virtually. And 
you know, what we found to be the most effective form of getting through those dark days was over communication. And I can't stress that. It seems so simple. And, you know, someone says, you know, how do you get through a pandemic and they want this magic formula? There wasn't one. But every day we would talk to the whole organization. Whatever we heard, good or bad, we shared. And I think that was important to build up credibility and to build up, again, that trust. And, you know, whether it was a difficult conversation or today was a little bit better, we had to share it, right? Everyone was in this together. Everyone needed to appreciate what was going on, what would be expected of them. And how the plans will change. And we're, we're not going to be married to any specific plan. The virus will disrupt your strategy. And that's the message I kept giving. So we have to try to anticipate what's going to happen. So we're playing both offense and defense at the same time. And I appreciate that causes complexities and ambiguity. But we have to manage that. And if we work together, we will get through it. And it was hard. I mean, we had to furlough some staff too. Patients weren't coming in. Governor Cuomo in New York, as well as the whole tri-state area governors, I mean, they shut everything down. But we weathered through the storm. And I think, you know, having those conversations were just so important in making sure everyone was updated. We would stay on the phone until every question was answered. Even if some of the questions started to become repetitive because we were on the phone for so Mm -hmm. long. It was important for every single person at WestMed to feel like they were heard. We heard them, and we're going to give you the best answer that we could possibly give. And in those times where we didn't have an answer, we said, we don't have an answer. And once we do, we will come back to you. And I think that really went a long way. I think the other thing, too, is when you had the level of media that was just sharing a tremendous amount of bad news every day, number of body bags outside of Manhattan hospitals and things like that. I mean, it's very hard to to wake up and be motivated to say, I want to come to work and and do this. I mean, there was fear. There was just complete exhaustion. There was, you know, so many different emotions. But, you know, we tried to tell everyone, look, you know, I understand how bad it seems, but it's going to get better. We have to believe that. You know, I, I think... Although you could say hope is not a strategy, when you're in the middle of a global pandemic and every day seems worse than the day before, I think hope and having a reassuring message is so important because your mental outlook and how are you going to tackle this giant task in front of you, it's very challenging. So as best we were able to do without being too optimistic, but being cautiously optimistic that we were going to get through this. It kind of worked out because once the middle of May came about, things started to lighten up a little bit. And once we got into June and definitely into July, I mean, our demand patient volume was probably 140 plus percent, yet we still were at maybe 95% capacity because we didn't want to disrupt the protocols that we had put in place, you know, the virtual waiting rooms, things like that. It was still in the community, not as bad as it was in March and April, but we never want to let our guard down with this virus. And that's the message even as of last week when we were talking to our entire organization. You can't be asleep at the wheel, so to speak, with this virus because it gets out of control that quickly. 
Well, it sounds like the immunization is coming soon, and then you're going to have a whole issue. You're going to have to deal with that on how to give that the immunizations, but that will be good news. The important words that keep coming up, communication, trust, relationships. And, you know, it's been said by many leaders, people will do things to help the organization and they'll follow rules as long as you provide the why. You know, in my experience, the why is what is missing often when people hand down rules. As I said in other episodes, especially when you're dealing with doctors, you probably, you've been dealing with doctors long enough. We don't like to follow rules. We're not rule followers. We're independent free-minded thinking. But if you tell us something and then you give us a why, then we will certainly abide by those rules. You know, this podcast really came about because during COVID, you know, I'm teaching 10 years now. I'm teaching doctors how to break bad news. I'm teaching patient experience. I'm teaching communication. And then all of a sudden, March or April, I get contacted through a friend, two major international companies that have had hundreds of employees die of COVID and asked me to train their HR people because it's now for the first time ever, an HR person has to call someone up in a different country to say, Tony, you know, Jim, who used to sit next to you in that cubicle for the last 20 years, he died. And they weren't prepared to do that. And this podcast came about because I started to realize more and more, if you know how to communicate, if you know how to give bad news to a patient or a family member, then having those difficult conversations with employees who you have to furlough or God forbid you're telling them about their workmate who just died from COVID. So COVID's changed everything. And really, I would say if it weren't for COVID, I wouldn't be doing this because the whole concept of this podcast is doesn't matter whether you're in business, doesn't matter whether you are in healthcare. If you can learn to communicate, my goodness, that's... And it, it sounds like the reason why you have such good employee there and you navigated through this is that you provided the why as much as you knew. Sure. I mean, I think I've been fortunate enough to be a follower of uh, Simon Sinek. So, yeah. So understanding the why and where that fits in the overall communication strategy is very important. But again, it's the over-communicating the why. I realized a long time ago, Tony, it's not what you say, it's what someone hears. Exactly. And a lot of time... When you ask a question and you'll, or you give uh, an answer and you say, you know, there are any questions or do you guys agree? How many times no one says anything? And, you know, most people say, okay, they all agree with what I'm saying. And that's not my experience has been that is not the case. Silence does not necessarily equate to agreement. It just means I don't want to be disruptive in an audience and tell you that I disagree with you. So we try to figure out, especially during this COVID crisis, you know, what are the multiple ways and multiple channels that we can try to get this message across, but also try to look for those signs where it is understood? And then how do we have a level of comfort? So if there are questions or even disagreements, you know, we can bring that to the forefront sooner. I said, I wish I had all the answers. I clearly do not. So if anyone has better suggestions, this is the right time, the right place to be able to have these types of conversations. But here's what I think is the right thing to do. And here's why I think it is right. And if it turns out tomorrow that it isn't right, we'll certainly pivot accordingly. And I think that just built a a lot of trust in the system. Plus, the truth is we were all in this for the first time as a world. 
wasn't even as WestMed. It wasn't even as the U.S. It was, you know, it was a global pandemic. And so in many ways, no one had the answers. And I think that is allows us to kind of come together because it wasn't, I disagree with you. It's like, I don't know. So we'll follow you until we see that, you know, it's not working. And the first wave of this virus, luckily it has worked. Now, you know, being here in New York, we're clearly into the second wave of this virus and we're starting to have these communications again with our employees. We're doing a tremendous amount of patient outreach so that way they will understand what to expect. I mean, it's sad to say this, but after everything that everyone has been through and there's so much COVID fatigue, as we enter the second wave of this virus, you know, there still isn't enough testing. And, you know, my ability to want to test every single patient who needs a test is very limited. So, you know, it's not just the treatment of patient care. It's going to be the communication of how, you know, when should you come in for the test? And I know with the holidays coming up, it's Thanksgiving next week. Everyone who wants to go to their aunt and uncle's house for the holidays wants to come in and get a test. I don't have enough tests, unfortunately to be able to do that. So I can only really test symptomatic people who like to rule out flu and strep throat and, and then sit there and say, okay, let's now give you a cold test. So hopefully we'll have more tests in the near future, but I would have thought after this first wave, that would have been something that we wouldn't be having this conversation about. But I think the hospitals will be unfortunately overrun as well. And it's just something that Unlike the first wave where we didn't have the experience, at least with the second wave, we kind of know what's to come. And I think all of us in the community are going to be much better prepared. Not to say it's going to be easy by any stretch, but it's not going to be as foreign as the first wave was where literally minute by minute, you had no idea what to expect. Yeah, New York City took such a big hit. As you know, I'm a New Jersey person, and but I moved down to Orlando six years ago. And Florida took a hit, but thankfully we did not have the hospitals overrun and all that. I think what we didn't anticipate, though, is people asking for a test just because they want to go see Aunt Edna. And we had assumed that people would go for a test when they were exposed or when they were feeling sick. We didn't think that, you know, I'd like to go to see Aunt Edna for Thanksgiving, so let me go for a test. And even though we are making a number of an unbelievable amount of testing, it's still not enough. And every day I pray for the vaccine to come out. I think that's the only way we're going to finish this and get back to normal. Has WestMed still having furloughs and issues? And or are you coming back? Or Again, very fortunate. I wish I could say it was, you know, the great execution of the strategy, but our business bounced back very quickly. There was just tremendous demand. We probably had about six weeks that I would say were a bit rough. But as I mentioned earlier, I think financially, we shored everything up. We continued to have virtual visits. My biggest concern was that there were many patients who needed treatment but were too afraid to come out. And if they didn't get that treatment, their chronic illness, their, you know, the complexities of what they had was going to get worse. So even in a pandemic, we have to think about how can we deliver care to those patients that need it. So we're constantly thinking about how do we reinvent our own model and disrupt our own model, because this is going to be the new norm that we're facing. 
But after six weeks, we were really kind of back to normal where I said I had to like limit the amount of appointments just to try to keep everything safe. So from that perspective, you know, economically, it's been very well. But again, it's just something that I think when you go through this and everyone who's experienced this firsthand, I'm sure would agree, it's humbling, but it also, you don't forget it easily. And going into the second wave, it's as if March was just yesterday. Even though the difference between March and April felt like a year in between those uh, you know, couple of weeks, the rest of the year has been so fast moving. We're already into November. But now that we're in the second wave, I feel like it was just yesterday in those darkest hours. And that's still front and center on my mind. Still got PTSD. You know, the word you said before, cautiously optimistic, which I think is really important because we're trying to go through this fine line of being optimistic, telling people that they need to be concerned about this. This is serious without panic. And I know that there's a bunch of people who have died at home from strokes and heart attacks. And just last month, I got a call from a friend of mine saying, please speak to my dad. He's having chest pain. I think he's having a heart attack, but he refused to go to hospital because he doesn't want to get COVID. (laughs) And so it's a fine line to walk. And I think that's where the media sometimes needs to maybe pull back a little bit on the panic. I know it sells newspapers, but it's tough to say you need to take this really seriously, but not so seriously that you're willing to have a heart attack and die because you're afraid of getting COVID in the hospital. And, and I think that's been the challenge. And I hope that we can come together as a country and try to understand that if, as I was taught a long time ago, if you think a problem has a simple solution, then you obviously don't know what the hell's going on. <laughs> so, And the solution is, oh, everybody will wear masks and everything is just going to be fine, or let's lock down and everything will be fine. That's making a very complex problem very simplistic. So it sounds like WestMed has been able to do that. Anthony, we're running towards the end, and I know your time is very valuable, but I always ask my guests the same final question. Most of them hate it. So I'm going to, I'm going to ask you. So the name of this podcast is difficult conversations. You've been an executive. You've been a leader. You're a CEO. You've been in healthcare, out of healthcare. What type of conversation do you think? Now, for me, it's breaking bad news, telling a patient they're dying. But in your experience, what type of conversation is the most difficult conversation that you have to have? And can you give anybody advice on how to navigate through that? I would say for me, the most difficult conversation to have is when you have to let someone go. And sure, most of your prior guests probably have had the same thing. It's extremely emotional, especially when you work closely with someone for years. You maybe build a personal relationship. You may like them, but it just reaches a point where maybe they're not effective in their job or it's just not the right job for them. doesn't mean they're not a good person. It's just not the right job for them. Those are really hard. And I remember one in particular that unfortunately I had to let go. And I felt so horrible because his child was just about ready to go to college and he was trying to pay for college. And he asked me, how am I supposed to pay for my daughter's tuition? Wow. And you take that home. You get to the top and you look around, you realize you're by yourself. You have no real support system. And every decision that you will ever make impacts everyone who is under your care. And I think maybe I was a a bit unprepared for that in the beginning. 
And it was hard, but I think the best advice I can give is, you know, there is no silver bullet, but I think just, again, like everything, communicate honestly, you know, tell them where they went wrong, try to help them land another job. I mean, in this particular case, I said, you know, this is not the right position for you, but I actually know someone who's looking for someone who has your skills and I'm going to put the two of you together. And and I think if you treat people the way you want to be treated, and you make that aspect very personal, it's not business, I think you could take a very difficult conversation and make it a little less difficult. It's never going to be easy. And there is such a big human element to it, no different than what you must experience telling patients about you know, end-of-life conversations. There's no easy way of doing it, but it's so important. It has to be done. So I don't think it's so much at times what you say, it's it's how you deliver the message, which I believe is also the title of your book. It's all in the delivery. Yes. All in the delivery. And I, and I think that is just really so important. It doesn't take the pain out of it, but it helps get you through it. And I think that you also have to understand that when you're dealing with people, it's much more than just the situation that you have at hand. And I'm always, you know, mindful of the fact that people have families, people have health issues, people have, you know, other issues besides their job. So, you know, you have to at least be aware of what goes on inside of people's lives. Treat them the way you would want to be treated, treat them with dignity, but always be clear. And nothing should ever be a surprise. So in my example, we've had multiple conversations before. There was performance reviews. You never want to surprise anyone, good or bad, in my opinion, right? I think business relationships are no different than any other relationship. They need to be nurtured and they need to come along over time. So again, that's probably the best advice I can give you. It was a very hard and gut-wrenching experience to deliver that kind of news to someone. Yeah, and you hit the nail right on the head. It should never be a surprise. When I teach Breaking Bad News, we use an acronym called PROGRAM. The G is for gradual. And what I teach physicians all the time is that by the time you give that bad news, the patient should already know it's coming. And we use different verbal, nonverbal language. And even when I interviewed James Orsini from the Sasha group, I asked him the same question. He almost gave the same answer. He said, first of all, I think his response was, first of all, it should never be a surprise. But how you deliver that news, it's all in the delivery is so important in my business. And when you deliver tragic news, If you do it wrong, it could affect somebody for 30 years. And it should not be informational when you give bad news. It should be relational. So you were upset about that. And he probably noticed from the tone of your voice and the way you took that. And in the end, he would appreciate that. You know, the way doctors give out, discuss medical errors, as you probably know, makes a huge difference on whether you're going to get sued for malpractice or not. And we've gotten that wrong so many times. Medical errors happen. You send in a lawyer, you send in the CEO of the hospital or the administrator. And, and in the end, they're looking at a whole bunch of guys in suits. And the message is you're just afraid of getting sued. You send in a physician who's been trained and we do a lot of medical error training and says he's sorry or she's sorry and discusses with them. The American Bar Association said, you are much less likely to get sued if that doctor does it and does it in a compassionate manner and says, you're sorry. In fact, in I think 14 states now, the word I'm sorry isn't even admissible in court anymore. Patients want to hear I'm sorry. So as you said, when you care and how you deliver it makes all the difference. I think that's 
fantastic advice. And it's, it's amazing how consistent those answers get. But I appreciate that. Well, Anthony, this has been great. I think you've really shed some light on the amazing things you're doing at WestMed. Again, being top in patient satisfaction, top in for accountability care organizations and best workplaces, that is a trifecta that is very impressive. And it's all about relationships. And I think a lot of that has to do with people on the ground, but also you. So thanks so much for being on this podcast. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, thank you, Tony. I was happy to be on. And I think, you know, congratulations to you and to keep this up because I do think this matters. You'd be surprised. A lot of people do not know how to have difficult conversations and it makes the world of difference as you're going through difficult situations. And I applaud you for what you're doing here. I think a lot of people are going to learn a lot and that's what's most important, right? We have to share knowledge, not keep it. Yep. Steal from each other, I say. We steal from each other. So, Anthony, what's the best way if someone wants to get in touch with you? I'm going to put all your stuff on my uh, notes, but what's the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah, through my email contact is always the best way to get in touch with me. And, you know, as I said, I'm a professed workaholic, so seven days a week. I'm tuned in and going. That's because it's uh, something I'm very passionate about and love what I do. Thanks again. If you like this podcast, please go ahead and hit the subscribe button. Go ahead and download all the previous podcasts, especially the ones that we referred to today. If you want to find out more about what we do in the training positions, patient experience, and communication training, you can contact me through my website, theorsiniway.com. Thanks again, Anthony, and really appreciate your time. I know it's very valuable. Thank you. Thank you, Tony. Well, before we leave, I want to thank you for listening to this episode of Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician. And I want to thank the Finley Project for being such an amazing organization. Please, everyone who's listening to this episode, go ahead, visit thefinleyproject.org, see the amazing things they're doing. I've seen this organization literally save the lives of mothers who lost infants. So to find out more, go to thefinleyproject.org. Thank you, and I will see you again on Tuesday. If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit the subscribe button and leave a comment and review. To contact Dr. Orsini and his team or to suggest guests for future podcasts, visit us at theorsiniway.com.